But here's the thing, man. Whenever the cops gun down an innocent black man, they always say the same things, man. They always say the same thing. It's like, well, it's not most cops. It's just a few bad apples. It's just a few bad apples. Bad apple. That's a lovely name for murderer. It's like, how'd they get that one? Bad apple, that almost sounds nice. I mean, I've had a bad apple. It was tart, but it didn't choke me out. <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I know it's hard being a cop. I know it's hard. I know that shit's dangerous. I know it is, okay? But some jobs can't have bad apples, okay? Some jobs, everybody got to be good. Like pilots. You know? American Airlines can't be like, you know, most of our pilots like to land. <laughs> we just got a few bad apples that like to crash in the mountains. Please bear with us. All right, welcome back, analysis listeners. I want to welcome into the podcast today a friend of mine, a listener of the show. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's the uh, Miss Brittany Brown. Yes. I'll say your Hello. name first. We love it. Yeah. So one of the things I say is, if you listen to the show and you raise your hand and ask to come on, you get to come on. There's, we love there's, it. <laughs> but we love it. so me and you have talked about coming on before, right? We, yeah. 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 We had kind of talked about. Um, like we had talked about our, our love of Jim Carrey. Yes, yes, you're gonna come on and do the Jim Carrey yes. case for. We also talked about Remember the Titans, also because it's like my favorite sports film of like all time. Oh, okay, yeah. Cool. Maybe we'll maybe we'll get into a little bit of that today, but not as deep of a dive as you're going to want to do eventually. Yes. yes. But this is a different time, and I know we had talked about some other more structured things that we normally have on this podcast, but it's right now, if you're listening to this, I don't know at what point you're listening to this, but uh, very much in the wake of George Floyd, mm -hmm. uh, Black Lives Matter has always been around since 2016 and been relevant, but is, is particularly relevant right now. And so me and you have communicated and collaborated on having a conversation celebrating black filmmakers and celebrating films around race. Mm -hmm. And I'll just start personally by saying this was a conversation that scared me. I was very nervous. I was trying to wrestle with, do I even have a podcast about this? Because, you know, by no means am I, am I a guy that is the end all be all and you know this goes well beyond any suggestion that I can make in terms of a movie to watch or a uh, a book to read or, or, or a show to watch and I was like do I really have something to say in this and I read a book recently called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield and it talks about the point of if something scares you then that's all the more reason to do it mm -hmm. and to attack it as, as, as somebody pursuing 
art and conversation in general. So uh, I've decided, even though the, the conversation makes me uncomfortable and, and talking about race makes a lot of white people uncomfortable, I think it's important for us to, to have those conversations because, you know, uh, being uncomfortable allows you to learn and grow. Yeah. So uh, I came to you. And I knew that you always wanted to come on the podcast, and, and I said, you know, this might not be uh, the, the, the type of conversation maybe that a Jim Carrey conversation <laughs> would be, but I said, you know, hey, what, what would you think about uh, doing a conversation on, on race and film? And you had a great suggestion, which was, let's celebrate just black filmmakers in general, which I was like, absolutely. So... Yeah, how, how did you feel when I came to you to have this conversation? Well, I loved it, and it kind of goes back to the thing you said about if it if it scares you, then that kind of should propel you forward. And I think that it's so important, and it, it, it's really great whenever people talk about how this conversation is very scary to them. It's kind of uncharted territories for a lot of people. Um, and to... You know, a little bit to that extent, I felt similarly because I am a black woman, but I don't think I've ever really been asked before what my opinions are on um, black cinema, but also like on a, a lot of, of these issues. I've uh, grown up in a, a lot of predominantly white places. This is probably the most diverse place I've, I've lived in in like the past like decade and a half. Um, and so I was, whenever you had asked me, I was like, I love this also oh my God, I've never, I don't think I've ever really talked about a lot of my opinions about a lot of these things. And so I was very excited and also a little bit nervous too. Yeah. Part of my, a really big catalyst for me to want to have this conversation was also doing research and, and reading a book called White Fragility mm-hmm. um, by Miss D'Angelo. And I, it, a lot of that talked about how white people don't talk about race or it's very much um, individualistic mindset versus objectivity and when you're individual it's like as long as I'm not doing anything outrightly prejudice right and I and I'm just being a good person then you know I've done my part when it comes to race and then you start to that book very much talks about white fragility and when you don't talk about race then that sweeps the problems under the rug for you and it makes it very convenient for you as a white person. So just kind of building up a social stamina and being comfortable talking about race and coming with it from a point of humility and coming from it, it, basically knowing that you are probably undereducated in the conversation because the system has always benefited you. So you haven't really had to learn. The more you learn about it, the more you realize that you're feeding into this these social systems that uh, give you an advantage. You don't have that social stamina. And so I think being comfortable, being uncomfortable and having conversations about race is really important for people to do right now, or at least I feel based on reading that book. Yeah, um, I think a lot of, uh, a big misconception is that um, what's happening right now is a, a black issue. Um, and, and it's, and it's not. I think that what we're going to find is that there is no, there's no way that it can only just be a black issue. And so I think that what's so great about people educating themselves with um, White Fragility, uh, The New Jim Crow, other books mm-hmm. like that, is that they're finally starting to see that this infects other facets of their life. And when it 
starts to affect you, that's when you start to realize how much it's affected other people. So Absolutely. And the, the book has a great analogy in it that I wanted to share, which was imagine that you're in the doctor's office and your doctor comes to you and tells you, I'm sorry, but uh, you've been diagnosed with an acu- uh, acoustic neuroma. And before she can talk, or before the doctor can give you any more information on an acoustic neuroma, she's called away. And she cannot return to your doctor's room. And the nurse comes and says, I'm sorry, but the doctor's going to have to follow up with you. There's an emergency, and they can no longer see you right now. What would you do? You'd probably go home and do a lot of research on an acoustic neuroma. You'd probably look for focus groups that discuss how other people overcame acoustic neuroma. You would do a lot of friggin' research, or even if she talked to you about an acoustic neuroma, you probably would still go do those things. So basically we've been diagnosed. There's a systemic racism that you probably don't know a bunch about white people. You should go have conversations, do the research, um, and, and educate yourself further. And I think I'm very much, by reading that book, it pegs me. Uh, I'm, I'm breaking myself down in terms of humility and, and trying to just say, I've got a lot to learn and I'm at the starting line on it. Um, but, and I also think I'll transition this to movies now. You know, we are socialized by, in mainstream culture, by television and by movies. I think anyone that listens to this podcast regularly knows how impactful it is on my life. And this is also an industry which has, even before this stuff, been widely criticized for not having inclusion. It's yeah. it's the, the people who run these industries, the producers and the directors are all members of the privileged class. 99% of them are white. And so you're looking at a system where this is our mainstream culture and it's run by all of these people who can't possibly have perspective and give a voice to the the racial other and so when you look at that and when you look at the the projects that are produced and just movies in general which like like, like of course bob that you you love movies all of them are for you yeah. you know very yeah. rarely are they for other people you know so when i when i start to reflect on my life and i'm like man every movie's for me and every teacher i've ever had has been white and most situations i've never really been to a party where i'm the only white person and you start to like really think about how convenient your life has been it really is eye-opening so that's why conversations on race and movies and inclusion and celebrating the 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 very few people who get a chance and how great that is i think that's a conversation that needs to be had and i want to say this is part one of the conversation we're going to have lots more conversations and we will talk about jim carrey yes yes Yes. oh of course of course uh and i was just going to say it's a it really it's kind of like the the glass breaking Uh like you're you're kind of starting to realize through all, all of this, you know, kind of this deep dive you've done into a lot of information that there are so many things that you didn't realize were at play because it all comes from a, a, a privileged perspective. Um, and so I think it's really great that we're having this conversation. And also, I, you know, full transparency, a lot of what I enjoyed growing up, I realized was a lot more geared toward a, a white audience. And I never realized whenever I was looking back at like, my childhood like favorite films or you know favorite tv shows a lot of them really were more geared toward white people because there's just so much abundance um and so i think that it's really great that we're 
really diving into um, more more black cinema. And then when when a black movie does come out, there's there's a few different ways that people think about it, and I've been guilty of my myself. Is like, oh, that movie's for black people. Like that's clearly the that's the target yeah. demo. So you, you know, if I come across it, maybe, but like that's that movie's not for me, which is bullshit. Yeah. Right. Or oh, that looks really heavy. Yeah. I need to be in a certain mood. To, and I'm I, I said it once and I was so ashamed of myself the, the Selma movie that came out yeah and I'm sitting in a room full of white people and I'm like man I, I just with everything going on right now I just don't know if I have it in me to 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 watch that today and someone checked me and that, I think we need a lot of that is just people checking and being like what the fuck is wrong with you dude yeah. like because it's like yeah because yeah, it's, it's heavy it's heavy but it's people lived it. Yeah, and, that's, and just because it doesn't why. affect you directly, like you, and also just the more you learn about it, the more you realize the the, the systemic thing. It's it's four hundred years of of uh, the, of a ball that's been wound that we need to unwind, and a lot of that goes into the judicial system, into into the way we police people, the way that we we benefit financially off of that, and so you need to understand that exactly. Well, and it's at. at the core of our country, the foundation, is is this racism, is this kind of crux of mistreatment of, of, of black people. And unfortunately, you know, it might be, you know, 400 years later, but whatever, you know, I'm personally really, really, uh, I'm really glad that we're in the middle of this uprising because yeah. I think it's been, a, it's been a long time coming. Um, and I think especially in... Um, in cinema, you know, kind of what you were saying, it's it, it really is an uphill climb because a lot of uh, black films, they're either about slavery, racism, segregation, or um, they'll get the stigma of there's already a version of that film and that version's white. Yeah. And also there's the producers can hide behind, well, they're not as profitable, yeah. which is is also being proven to be untrue yeah. in, in today Look at as Black well. Panther. Look at it. Look at <laughs> we it. We love to see it. Yeah. I was actually just listening to our podcast on it with Barry Irving, who I saw it, and it was his fourth time seeing it in, in a week. But uh, he just, yeah, it's just a, a huge movie. And, and you think about how that manifests itself in TV. And actually, there was, a, there was an episode of Stranger Things, the newest season, and it yeah. starts off on Halloween. And all the kids are dressed up in... Ghostbusters outfits and the black kid is wearing a Venkman and they were like oh you're supposed to be the Ernie Hudson's character I can't remember what his name is in Ghostbusters he's like why that that character's whack and yeah. and he's like I want to be Venkman and so like that that's working on a couple different layers there right like first of all black kids like not being able to like the best characters in movie and TV are all white mm -hmm. but and and also the fact that like that character was edited out like, like the Ernie Hudson's character in Ghostbusters kept getting edited down and down and down to where basically by the the final cut of that movie he was a vanilla like who cares character you know what I mean yeah. and so it's like they're like they kept like throwing more things to Bill Murray and so it's just like like that's that's part of like the the it, like those kids consuming that. And so I thought that was really interesting. Uh, just a really interesting yeah. note that they added in Stranger Things as well. But you just like that's like that's the experience. That's the black experience when it comes to film and television. So. It, it, it really is. A lot of times, you know, I know that whenever I was younger and my friends and I we would see a movie, if they're, 
if there was a black character in it, it would always just be assumed that that's like the character I would want to be if we were like play acting it out. Yeah. And um, and it's like well, nine times out of ten that character was minor. Mm-hmm. It, it you know that the character maybe didn't serve as much of a purpose. And yeah, like that, like especially it's like I don't I want to be the character I I want to be, and the coolest character almost was never never the black yeah. character. Yeah. And so. We are here today yeah, we're here. to have a conversation on when those people got to be the main character or when there was finally an opportunity for a black director to have a voice. Or uh, sometimes the movies come and they, they uh, do a great job of educating or shining a light onto uh, injustices and the social constructs of racism that I at least didn't see before I saw that material. So. Let's start with a movie that's being shared a lot, a documentary on Netflix, uh, 13th, Mm -hmm. which was nominated for an Oscar a while back. But, you know, we talk about uh, individualism versus objectivity. And when you're a a white person and, and you think, oh, I'm not doing these overtly prejudiced acts, so, you know, I'm not I'm not involved in racism. This movie does a great job of showing the systemic, basically from post-slavery all the way till now, the systemic injustices around our judicial system um, that are that lead to the imprisonment. And so it starts off with uh, Barack Obama, and he's saying that um, America has 5% of the world's population, but... 25% of the world's prisoners and 40% of those prisoners are black. So our the amount of times we incarcerate people is insane and then of course it's all targeted specific or a lot of it is targeted towards a specific race, but it breaks down a lot of the reasons behind that. So what did you think when you watched this movie? I I have to be honest, I only knew a, probably about 70% of what was in this documentary. Um, whenever you're watching, because uh, kind of how we're they're keeping time in the documentary is showing you um, the difference between how many people um, were imprisoned at a certain year, and then it was usually like a, a you know a four or five year time jump, and it showed you how much higher that percentage was. Yeah, they have this. It's a really impactful tool that they use in the movie, where it's just a it's a number scale. It's yeah. almost like numbers flipping up. Uh, every time the timeline moves, the it goes from you know uh, nineteen or the the late eighteen hundreds or something like thirty thousand yeah people are imprisoned and then by the end of the movie it's you know millions of people it you was know. astronomical yeah. like I I know you know the first couple of times where they where they used that motif it was like you know it was maybe you know going up a few thousand maybe five or ten thousand but then you know by the time you you get to the end i mean it's it's jumping in in the millions higher and it's just it was absolutely staggering and for me it's like i i felt um a little to be honest undereducated about the prison industrial complex Mm -hmm. um and so i was really just i was really just floored um, especially when you also look into the differences of offenses of, of Mandi- like, yeah. yeah, mandatory minimums. Yes. And how 
crack is typically a cheaper drug, so it's able to have more of a footprint in in the black community versus mm-hmm. powder cocaine and the difference between a sentence for uh, possession of just a little bit of crack versus what would be the possession of a lot of cocaine. is right. very, It's because one's a white drug and one's a black drug. Yeah. And so, and then you've got these like crazy and, 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 and you see that there's this run of uh, Republican presidents that are using, um, you know, that criminality, to to win elections right there and 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 it goes back to in this movie in in speaking of movies this documentary talks about the the power of cinema in that birth of a nation yes basically paints it it's it, it's powerful at the time and it's even screened at the white house by woodrow wilson and it's like and it paints black men as rapists and criminals and it basically creates this white fear and and you start to they even the documentary does a nice job of drawing a parallel to how our news media constantly showing like black men being cuffed black men yes. being this this violent aggressive group of people and so it it just it continues to run parallel and manifest itself over and over again right yeah and you know especially when you were talking about you when Nixon and Reagan were in office, how, you know, they went about the war on drugs. And I just, it's like, I knew a little bit of that, but it was just so insane to see kind of the fear that they manufactured Mm -hmm. um, with that. And when they talked about how, you know, when you, uh, I, I can't remember exactly who it was that they, that had spoken of this, but they had gotten somebody on tape who had talked about how it was all... The Southern strategy. it was just all an illusion. And it was like, we knew that there was absolutely nothing nearly... It was not more dangerous, you know, necessarily. But it was powerful politically, so we could pitch it and then run it through legislation. And then the ALEC law, which that was the shit that got me most fired up, was that there's... A, a committee that's run by businesses and 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 with with that type of interest, and they're able to propose laws through government, and even it's still in the lever, letterhead as it gets yeah. proposed into Congress. It's just like, oh my god! It was, and I loved how they had the juxtaposition of. Uh, the, the man who was the representative, the special interest, uh, yeah. or, or the man who was a representative of. Um, uh, like who was kind of talking about how he? Oh yeah. I can't remember what his name is, but he was how he was talking about. It. He was like, "Well, this isn't. That's not what we're interested yeah, in." That's like yeah. Now it's now it's bail, and now it's yeah. post. Now it's post sentencing, and it's like exactly because oh, it manifests itself like a cancer, right? It did, and like he would, you know, he kind of had all of those. Like he was Johnny on the spot. He like had all. He had an answer for everything, and then you would cut to somebody else who was like, "Well, let's unpack that because we can completely mm-hmm. discredit it." Yeah, and it, it was just it's so frustrating and and a lot of this was uh, in the 13th there's there's little claws in it and it was in that that's one of the themes of the documentary is that this one clause that basically yes you are a free person and yes you have rights now unless you are a convicted felon right and that can be used as a tool because then the more times you are able to convict people of felonies you're stripping away that right and it basically becomes a new version of slavery right and, and especially back then, what constituted a felony was 
was you know yeah not much it could yeah it could be just especially like post uh, post Civil War it could mm-hmm. just be loitering it could be just yeah. anything that you can that was one of the main ones that they had talked about that mm-hmm. a lot of times it was just like they didn't like that you were just hanging around what are you there yeah. for yeah oh. felony and now all of a sudden you you get your rights stripped away so even when uh, Obama goes back and, and, and they celebrate the, the, the march on uh, at Selma across the bridge and you know it's like it, one of the messages there was 40% of the black men in this community can't vote because they're convicted felonies yeah and another thing is just how the the mandatory minimums and that was actually Clinton that brought that in yes. but it was because it was a it was a counter to the idea that uh, Liberals were squishy and, and, and soft on crime mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the conservatives. So he had, to, he had to, to fight that. And then I, I know I'm being an apologist and I'm probably showing my colors right now, but it's like he probably doesn't even get in the office if, if he's viewed as he had to right. look like he was tough on crime. And, yes, he, he made a big mistake. Yeah, and, and you, know, I, you know, they did recently, you know, come out and, and say that they realized that that – there, there was a better way that they could have gone about that because they, they did exploit, they exploited black people in order to be able to to show that they could be tough, that they weren't, that you know, Democrats weren't doormats, mm-hmm. um, and and I understand coming off of uh, Bush and and Reagan why they why he probably felt like he had to go that route, um, like you were saying, but at the same time it's. It's just so crazy that it took them until very recently to be like, I think we were wrong on that. I mean, I will gladly take an apology anytime. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I did. You know, I, I did like that they that thirteenth hit on on that in particular. That you know, mm-hmm. oh wow, it wasn't, and it also told the truth. It was it was transparent, and that it's, this isn't just one political party, and actually, people from from both sides of the aisle have made mistakes when it came to the legislation around some of this. So, yeah. I mean, it is, that, that is very unfortunate. I think the most powerful part of this documentary to me was um, Donald Trump and, and they had video yep. or at least audio from uh, his rallies and as he was man. running for president. And he was saying in the good old days, mm-hmm. they would have pulled him out in the good old days. He'd be leaving on a stretcher. And as he's saying that and as he's giving those examples, they're showing actual footage from the 50s, from the 60s, from the civil rights movement of yeah. what he's considering to be the good old days. And it's just repulsive. And and it, it's just such a powerful dynamic that they were able to hit in that yeah i was gonna say because that was that was probably the most powerful moment that they recalled because you know earlier in the documentary they also use that that same uh clip of a black man just walking down the street and these white people keep pushing him and they push his hat off his head and then he falls to the ground and whenever they were you know juxtaposing his rhetoric with that image it was just it just goes to show you that i think that especially when we are taught um history and we're, we're taught, you know, the civil rights movement very briefly. I, you know, I can't speak for your education, but I yeah. can speak for mine. It was very brief. Um, it, it's so strange to think that I probably, when I was younger, even in high school, you think, wow, how far have we come? No. And we really haven't. We, yeah. we, we've moved minutely in a better direction. And I do like to think that, you know, two steps forward, one step back is still one step forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but whenever I was watching 13th, it really shook 
um, a lot of that loose for me. And I also liked that um, it talks about generational trauma also. Yeah. Um, and I think that... I think that that's a, a, a great um, a, a great example of that, where it's like, even in the 50s and 60s, we we were still feeling like things are that much different from before 1865, yeah. and so we we've got to you know a hundred years later we've still got to push this forward, and I still feel like you know 50 years later it's like we're still pushing, yeah. and I think that that was something that was really great that 13th um, highlighted for me. You can definitely make fun of my education. That's fine. <laughs> I Here's something that's... They, they talk about this in White Fragility a little bit. You can get a law degree without ever having to go into a class on race, racism. So mm-hmm. you can be a defense attorney having never really taken some time to understand systemic racism. You can get a master's in teaching without ever having taken significant courses around uh, just race in America. Yeah. And, and so even though, yeah, my, you know, my school education and my high school education, we read To Kill a Mockingbird, like, it's, that, that's, Everybody that's nothing. It's yeah. nothing. You know what I mean? And, and I hope that they, that they show the, uh, that they show 13th and, 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 and things like this and create discussion because it, it's it just gets you into the conversation, yeah. Right, not like even me reading a reading this book and watching a few documentaries. You're just in in the beginning of the conversation, and there's a trickle down effect. Mm-hmm. And there it, you talk about generational pain, and it's like you want to understand why things are happening and why these marches, why people are so upset right now. Like, do even just get into this, but go deeper than that as well. Exactly. I you know it's I uh, love that that is um, a talking point that they make in in white fragility because I was thinking about, I was originally um, double majoring in psychology and I was looking at like what our curriculum was going to be. And um, you just think there are so many subjects, so many things that you can get a degree in where you never have to talk about, um, you know, necessarily the difference in in mental health um, in the black community, especially. Yeah. Um, it's, um, you know, mental health is very taboo in the, in the black community. And so I was always wondering, I thought it was interesting that whenever I looked at my curriculum, that there was, you know, nothing about trying to help kind of break that stigma, nothing like in any of our class load where it would mm-hmm. talk about any of that. So, um, whenever, cause I know you had mentioned that when we had had the discussion about doing this episode, I started to think back about how many things you can accomplish and you never have to give a second thought to uh, black people or their struggle. Yeah. And um, and things that could directly relate to that struggle. Exactly. And that, but the, the curriculum is formed by people who don't necessarily deal with any of that problem. So mm-hmm. why would I think to, so why to would add I, it? Yeah, exactly. And I think looking... Looking back, I, I, you know, we also learned very briefly about the the war on drugs. It, I remember whenever I was taking um, AP American History, um, you, we, you know, you touch very, very briefly on it, but you don't look at it um, and how it directly correlates to the mass imprisonment, specifically of Black people and the disruption of their communities. Yes, mm-hmm. um, and and um, I, I just I found it so. I found it so interesting that I had actually not heard of this documentary right away. Mm-hmm. I think it was probably a solid 
year, year and a half after it had already come out that I finally heard about it. It, it felt like it had been so, so buried in terms of um, the media that I surround, I see that I surround myself with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just, it brought a lot of really harsh things to light. Um, even, I mean, God, the, the prison system is fucked. Yeah. So. Man, the scenes of the of the, the dogs and the men, you know, basically stripped naked yep. and flipped around on the ground and, and all the fighting and, and the, the story example of the, the guy who didn't take the plea bargain and, and how they basically ran him to suicide. Yeah. And, you know, that's it's just so troubling. And the fact that Barack Obama is the only president to ever visit a prison, a sitting president that's ever visited a prison. It's and, insane. So, and I, the, the last thing I'll, I'll say on this is, you know, they do bring up the fact that, you know, and, and the, the film ends with um, uh, police brutality uh, and, and, and killings, uh, and it's, you know, they're showing all the examples, but they talk about the importance of the cell phone. Yeah. And they say, you know, this, this has been happening forever, this, these injustices, it's just now being filmed because right. everyone has a camera in their pocket. And that's why we're finally <coughs> holding people accountable mm-hmm. because there's no way to dispute what's right in front of yeah. you. You can't, it can't be a misinterpretation. It's right there. So, yeah. And I, I, I truly, yeah, that was, because when you think about it, when I think about when Black Lives Matter kind of came more into prominence and whenever, um, you know, you're, you're, looking at police brutality in like the cold light of day so much of that has been going on for so long that we that we didn't know about it. and think about like how much of it happened before there was any way to record anything like before you know yeah body cams dash cams any of that well and yeah in the, in the documentary talks about how martin luther king accredited a lot of the major movements of the civil rights movement because they could show, we could finally show with imaging and video. Video is so yeah. powerful. Just it is. here's a little kid getting attacked by a dog, you know, and that's so it's that's clearly uh, incredibly relevant to the George Floyd case as well. It is, and um, another thing, since you had uh, brought up Martin Luther King, what I liked that they talked about in the documentary was how he used the arrests from them marching, how he used those to flip the script and start finally talking about more of the issue is that, you know, we're, we're peacefully marching, but also look at, look at how we're being treated versus whenever uh, cops and other people who oppose our peaceful protesting, whenever they get violent, that's when things turn, but we're the ones getting arrested, yeah. but we're trying to show peacefully Look at what is happening to our our cities, our families, in in mass, in mm-hmm. a mass amounts. And it's just, I love that he was able to take something negative that was happening to them, something that could have been like a, a negative light on their movement. And he was like, no, I'm going to spin this and I'm going to show you what the real problem is underneath all of this. Perfect. Uh, yeah. Well, incredibly put. Let's transition to a totally different kind of movie. A movie that I'd never seen before. You recommended it to me. But Forrest Whitaker's only time directing, Waiting to Exhale. You have a huge smile on your face. What what does this movie do for you? Well, I think one of the things I love about it is that it's a film that has nothing really to do with race. It just happens to be about four black women and their lives. And I think what I find 
so refreshing about it is that it's about what other people might think are like mundane aspects of, of their lives, you know, their personal lives, you know, marriages falling apart, not being able to find a, a reliable partner. And we're getting a glimpse into those. Um, and, and something we had kind of spoken to earlier about, you know, whenever people think that black films won't uh, do well, uh, that they won't uh, do well at the box office, that they won't have a wide enough audience for it. Um, I had kind of done a, a little bit uh, more research into this film and I had read a couple of reviews and, you know, some of them talked about how, you know, well, we already have a movie like this or, well, it's just about people in their everyday lives. And it was like, how many people watch Seinfeld? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and don't get me wrong, I, I love Seinfeld. <laughs> I love it. I own it all on DVD. I think it's great. It's a show about nothing and it works perfectly. But I, I think what I like about this film is that it's like, well, to these women, it's not nothing. And if we can watch film and TV about the, the mundane, mundane aspects of, of white people's lives, why shouldn't we also do that and normalize doing the same thing with black people? That's really well stated. It's a, such a funny review. What It's just a stupid thing to say. No. I think this movie also, it, it speaks a lot to independence. Uh, there's a lot of these women are faced with pressures from their mother or from society uh, at large to find a man and to like that's the way to 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 have a fulfilled life and it's it's saying no absolutely like I, most of the men you meet in this movie are total absolute losers that only bring uh, chaos into the women's lives yeah. so it, in, at the, the very much that the journey of uh, most of the women in the movie is uh is being comfortable in your independence and actually no i don't need a man at all um to to live my best life and another thing that i really liked was you know all these women are successful and very independently successful yes. even um angela uh Bassett's character, uh, Bernie, 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 um, you know, her husband is, is very wealthy and, 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 and has his own business, but yet you know, she, she very, in a, in a fit of rage while she's in a very funny scene, lighting his, his car on fire. Yes. Uh, but she, she talks about how she had a business masters and she's done all of the hard legwork to get his, his company up off the ground. And, you know, she took a back seat because, that's what a wife is supposed to do, but really, she is the the brains behind that company and is and is uh, rewarded with that yes. at at the end of the film. So you know, a lot of these, you know, it also speaks to a independence. You don't need a man um, for for fulfillment in your life, but also you know they're they're just naturally successful. Uh, Whitney Houston's character Savannah, she's she's a TV producer. Yeah. She's doing really well, and her mom. Th- it basically makes her feel like she's an absolute failure yeah. because she she's hasn't worthless. found a man and she's like well, I, you know what I don't give a f- yeah you know and I definitely don't need a married man at that you know because mm-hmm. that you know is kind of her, her mom's really rooting for um, this this man that's been in and out of her life multiple times who like won't leave his wife the Allstate guy yeah I can't remember his name <laughs> yes yeah. yes oh my gosh well I, you love the cast of this movie too so you've I got do. the Allstate guy who I don't know his name, but everyone knows him as the, the old state guy. <laughs> uh, uh, you have Michael T. Williamson, yeah, who plays the drunk. Um, he's also it, it, who who those who might not know his work. He's um, 
uh, Bubba in Forrest Gump. But yeah, yeah he plays uh, he plays this uh, this drunk loser. Um, you've got what Gregory Hines. You've got Gregory Hines, who he's probably my favorite male character. Yeah, he's really well. cool. Yeah, he's really great. Um, Donald Faison's. Oh, a young Donald Faison. Whom I I love him I love Scrubs and mm-hmm. so um, I was super happy because I had not I had not remembered him being in it because he's not a huge part but he is like yeah, a very he's important glorious part of the film. son but yeah, yeah. but yeah. I like that he's at Wendell Pierce um, I don't know if you ever watched Suits but he is on uh, uh, no. Suits and which I really character like did him. he play he played um, who did he play oh, Mike Michael he used the character. Um, that uh, Robin is uh, sleeping with oh, at the beginning of the yeah. film. Oh, yeah, he's not in Suits, but he's in The Wire a lot. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, yes, Yeah, okay, so yeah, he's he's in it. Um, and then you've got Wesley Snipes in, in a scene. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, pretty loaded up cast. And, it's man, a great cast. Whitney Houston is a very attractive lady. Yes, R.I.P., yeah, because... Jeez. Uh, I thought she was, she's a very un- underrated actor, I think. I think a lot of people forget how many films she did that don't have anything to do with her singing. Yeah. Um, she tries to do the little singing in there. Just, just a little when bit. When the radio's on, I'm like, all right, Whitney. All right, all right. Apparently, you're a TV producer <laughs> and also an incredible recording artist. Oh, my God. I, I, I love it. Uh, I love um, I, I love anything Angela Bassett's really ever in. Uh-huh. Um, and no one plays woman scorned quite like her. Yeah. Um, I remember the first thing I had seen her in was uh, What's Love Got to Do With It? Mm-hmm. Um and I have a very vivid memory of seeing that while I was in my aunt's hair salon and it was on TV and everyone's just like got their eyes glued to the TV screen. And um, the scene, yeah, where she's lighting all of his stuff on fire. I remember people using that scene in particular to talk about the stereotype of an angry black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and whenever I, cause I had rewatched it uh, this week in anticipation and I was like, no, that's an angry woman because mm-hmm. I've seen this scene a bunch of times with with white women and you and everyone's just cheering like yeah burn his shit like he deserves it and I was just like but it was always something a little different whenever Angela Bassett did and Angela Bassett plays an angry woman really well mm-hmm. because she doesn't it's not always with uh, with a bunch of yelling or a lot of uh, you know profanity laden language uh, some of it is just very quiet and understated and her filling up his car lighting a cigarette and dropping it in. Yeah. And like, I just... Oh, or even just so the right. scene with the, the firefighter afterwards. Yeah. Where he... Where he's just like... Yeah. Are you aware it's illegal to bird? Yeah. Won't happen was, again. Door slam. That was trash. Yeah, yeah. that was trash. Yeah. I just... Oh, I think it, it's a really great... And Loretta Devine, mm-hmm. whom I've been a huge fan of also. It was so interesting to see her in a role like this where she is kind of this... Um, she's meek. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't always know how to assert what she wants. Um, she has that relationship with her ex-husband where she kind of hopes that she can get him to come over and that he'll yeah. stay. And, you know, maybe this time, you know, things will be different. And then he kind of drops that reveal on her uh-huh. that he's gay. Um, and it just kind of like knocks the wind out of her. And she's like, now I really have to start thinking about what's next for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think her her storyline is very powerful because you get to watch a woman grow into herself. Um, and I think that that's something that's really great. There, It just doesn't really feel like there are a lot of black films where you get to just see people be people 
and grow as individuals and they go from one place at the beginning of the film and they, you know, come into themselves. It's kind of like a coming of age story for, for all of them. And it kind of goes to show that you can come of age at any age. Yeah. And that's what I really like about that film. And that also, uh, I think there, you really only see one white character that's really of any consequence in the whole film. And that's uh, the woman that mm-hmm. Angela Bassett's husband is, is sleeping with. Yeah. She's seen very briefly in a boardroom scene. She and Big slap on the face. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I don't condone violence, but man, do I get it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I just... I oh God, it's just so great to see, and that it was a film about for women too. Mm-hmm. Uh. Also, not happening very often. Really. Yeah. So, fun, fun. Forrest Whitaker, a yeah. Directing turn too. I want him to direct more because yeah, I thought not? it was a really well-made film, well-executed. Yeah. yeah, it's got good pace to it. Yeah. So cool, cool. Thanks for sharing. I think I want to transition to a, a television show. We're talking about the importance of. Uh, television and cinema as they make up our our mainstream culture but a show that i have really taken to especially during covid something that i've found and this donald glover guy whoever he is (laughs) pretty talented little cookie uh i think uh atlanta is a show it's one of the funniest and weirdest shows and i I play this game every time I watch it um, with, with, with someone that I watch it with, and I always turn to her and I say, I say, what was that one about? And there, it's, a, it's, a, it's honestly like part of our rhythm because this is it's just trying to unpack what the, what the episode was about. And it uses realism, like this hyper-realism on what it's like to live in Atlanta mixed with some off-the-wall surrealism to really throw you off in terms of what your instincts are and and it makes you question everything which is part of the show i think is just is look at everything look at every situation and try to think very critically about it and so i just love it so some of my let me let me before i get into some of this what are some things you like about this show um well, first off, I'm a huge Donald Glover fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I had not... I really didn't know too much about him as an actor. I knew him more from Childish Gambino. Mm-hmm. And um, so <clears throat> I didn't know too much about him as an actor, but like I had gone back and I had watched clips of him in <clears throat> in things, and I was just like, oh, yeah, I really... I, oh, I, I like him. I dig him. I dig his style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. What I like about the show, and I haven't seen all of it, um, but from what I had seen is I really like um, the the marriage he does of, of those um, hyper-stylizations where it's just like some things that are just kind of like out of left field where out the uh, episodes that I've seen, I very similarly am like, I need to watch it again. But what I think is that that's brilliant that mm-hmm. you make something that it's like, I kind of need to digest it again just so that I can fully understand what I just watched. But in a way that it's like, I'm excited to rewatch something I just watched because I have to, I have to dissect this. Yeah. And then 
it makes it, it because it's throwing you off your rational instinct it's making you think critically about everything and that's what he wants his audience to do is to yeah. constantly be challenging and and looking at it from multiple different angles to try to digest it right and so some examples of of like the way he uses realism is is, is like the the city of Atlanta becomes its a character in its own way and 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 it's a very simple premise for those who haven't seen it uh, he is a former Ivy League dropout, and he is taking on managing his cousin, whose name is Paperboy, who's a rapper, and he's managing his rapping career of his cousin. And but his, when we talk about the realism, right? Like his cousin Paperboy does not live in like an MTV Cribs mansion of a rapper like it's a pretty modest apartment it's yeah. like a one-bedroom apartment right and like they're constantly sweating and they drive shitty cars and it's not like a glamorized lifestyle it's very realistic in terms of like what you what you would see and i think a lot of people from atlanta comment all the time about it's like yeah that is atlanta yeah like the the, the type of chicken that they go get and the t- like they're like those are real places yeah and then you also get these like funny surreal moments where like one example is um paperboy the rapper goes to play in a charity basketball game and justin bieber Mm -hmm. is also playing in the basketball game but this justin bieber is a black like his name's justin bieber and he's a pop star but he's a black guy but he acts like a fool like he acts like a fucking idiot and very very acts very much like Justin Bieber, the, the yeah. Justin Bieber we all know acts, but it, you know, basically, and then it starts to be like, you're sitting there and you're like, why is Justin Bieber black? And then the more you start to unpack it, it's like, oh, okay, do, would we be forgiving this Justin, would we be forgiving our Justin Bieber if he were a black person? Right. Do the, does the white celebrity that goes and acts like a, like an insane person, are they given a, an extra uh, bit of, bit of slack? Yeah. Right. And so it's like you, you could start to think about like, oh, like if Miley Cyrus was black, do you think people would be as forgiving to her and some of her behaviors? Like, absolutely not. Right. Or whenever she, you know, talking about how like, you know, rap music or hip hop music and then and, and smoking weed was like a, a bad influence on on her in a period of her of her life. You know, would we be if we were kind of flipping the script and if that same celebrity were black would we have the the same would the same consequences hold and i think that that's a really great thing that he explores throughout the series and i completely agree one of my favorite things i love whenever the setting of a show becomes its own character yeah and that's what i because i feel like anytime that we do see um atlanta in in mainstream culture it tends to be a a little a, a little bit bougier it always tends to be kind of like the the richer aspect. Real Housewives of Atlanta. Real Housewives. Yeah. Um, whenever they set, um, like, um, I'm, I'm thinking a Taraji P. Henson film that I, I saw fairly recently was set in Atlanta, but everything was just like this hyper glamorized version, which I'm sure exists, but I don't know if it's commonplace for for the residents of Atlanta. And um, that's what I really like that he explores because he's like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sugarcoat it, and I'm certainly not gonna put rose colored glasses on it. I'm yeah. just gonna I'm gonna show you what's real. And that's and it's cool like, when, with the with the two different styles going on. Another one that I really liked was um, so Lakeith Stanfield goes and buys a gun target. He and he goes to the gun range, but the target is of a dog. 
and all of the white guys at the gun range are like, dude, you can't shoot a target of an animal. You can't shoot a target of a dog. And he's like, why? You're all shooting targets of people. Right. He's like, what? Why is this? What's why is shooting at a dog is so fucked up? Dogs are actually really dangerous in my neighborhood, and 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 they, they're like they completely don't understand and. And what they're trying to get at there is white people are more concerned over their pets and the and the rights people. and the, the than than people and it's just like oh my god this show is working on many different levels because it's also fucking hilarious like yeah. it's really funny show too. Well, that's what's another brilliant thing about it is that I think sometimes people realize that the that the easiest way, the most accessible way to get to talk about these really hard issues, is through humor. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that it's really, you walk a very tight line at being able to talk about certain things and infuse it with humor. Um, and I'm really glad that kind of more often than not, the only times I've seen people tackling racial issues with humor have been by black people. Yeah. I was actually talking with a friend the other day and I was saying like, man, someone that I always turn to, to give me perspective and like I, I almost just live my points of view in politics through this person is is Dave Chappelle, mm-hmm. and I was like, man, I wish Dave was out right now. And that person was like, yeah, the same for you, but my person is Donald Glover. And we both in this conversation were saying those guys don't necessarily run out all the time right when something happens they mm-hmm. tend to have a lot of critical thinking and they, they take a lot in so i assume one day i'll get dave Chappelle's point of view on this it'll probably be thought about and processed a lot so yeah. you, they're not they're not here for us like right this minute but it just may, maybe that's just the way that they go about taking their for they're just kind of a little slower when it comes to like getting all their their critical thought yeah because i think that there there's a lot to process with it but also i think to an extent it's like how can i use what i have to say to be inviting for for people to be open to but you know i kind of have to think about a way to tout that line with how i deliver things with my with whether it's like their particular version of comedy or um you know, just like their own general thoughts. It's like, how, how do I process it for myself? And then how can I then use it to make it accessible for other people to hopefully open their mind to? Yeah. And the point you made about comedy and, and that being a such a great bridge for everybody is I, I think Chris Rock had a great bit that has been memed to death yes. over the last couple of weeks, but it's, it's, Police, you know, I understand that there's a lot of great people, and I understand that. But when you tell me there's a few bad apples, yeah, he's like, some jobs you can't have bad apples. We can't like a have pilot. a few bad pilots, yeah, <laughs> and or even just I've, I've been talking and I was watching Thirteenth, and and uh, I was like, this reminds me of a Chris Rock joke, where it's you know every black guy in the street is a certified paralegal mm-hmm. because it's like don't do that, that's five to ten, and he's like, yeah. we have to be so aware. Of, of all of the sentencing and the minimums for like everything that we do, you just have to be super aware of the law as yeah. a black person, you know? So it's just like, that's that's such a great joke. Every black guy in the streets is a certified paralegal, but also has so many elements of truth to yeah. it to where I'm fucking learning at the same time what the perspective is, you it's know? It's always about how the, the connotations of how... Uh, I, I just think... That's why I think that... 
comedians are some of the, the smartest people, especially Absolutely. the smartest celebrities that, um, you know, we can kind of look to in, in these situations because, yeah, you, you can laugh at that joke surfacely because it's funny, but then there, there are like at least two or three different connotations that when you start to dig below the surface, you're like, and this is what he meant, and this is what he meant. And when you start to dissect it, you're like, he's actually saying a whole lot with a couple of words. Yeah, absolutely. So we touched on TV. So it's like Atlanta. I've been definitely going back, watching um, Chris Rock's most recent um, special. And just a siren, I did see that at the Chicago Theater here. <laughs> um, and so, like, I, I, I lived that moment, but it's just, like, ringing in my head right now. Dave Chappelle's most recent specials uh, have a lot to do with race and, and perspective. And uh, so, you know, those are those are guys I, I, I normally turn to and, and, and definitely are, are people that I kind of shape some of my viewpoints around as well. Let's keep the ball bouncing and uh, talk about a documentary that you had suggested to me, Four Little Girls, mm-hmm. by Spike Lee. Yeah. Guy who hasn't always been very popular in Chicago after he made Chirac. But yeah. Uh, yeah, Four Little Girls. And uh, why did why do you like this movie so much? Um, I really liked it, first off, because I had never... I had only seen fictional Spike Lee films. Um, and I was just like, oh, cool. I didn't realize that he had made a documentary. Um, and I had I'd probably discovered this mm, probably six or seven years ago. Um, and what I really liked about it um, is that it talks about a, a particular event that happened that I had no idea that had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a bombing in a church. Yes, it right. was a bombing in a church um, in Birmingham. And... Um, it was uh, a bomb that had been placed in the basement of the church uh, where Sunday school is usually had. Um, and these uh, four... It's the most evil shit you yeah, can do. Yeah. It's absolutely disgusting. These four little black girls, I think the oldest one was 14. Um, they, all, they all perished in it. Um, and what I liked, especially about this documentary, is that it talks about the bombing itself but it also talks about the civil rights movement leading up to this particular moment. Um, and they had interviews from, you know, the family members, but then they also had interviews from people who were uh, specifically in, involved in the civil rights movement at that particular time in, in Birmingham. And um, something that uh, really uh, stuck with me and not in a in a positive way um, was they had talked about um, there was this one particular uh, gentleman that they had uh, shown George Wallace, yeah. who was a, a governor at that time. And back during the civil rights movement, he had uh, done a lot to oppose segregation. Um, he was standing in front of the standing in front of the, the door. door of the the school when the girls the girl was trying to go to the, the white school. Yeah, yeah. And um, he spent a lot of time as as governor trying to prevent segregation or trying to uh, uh, reinforce segregation and and rather try to um, keep desegregation from happening. Um, and he had been interviewed toward the end of his life. He's a frail old man. Yeah, a frail point. old man. And he keeps referring back to the fact that his best friend at that current time is a black man. And it keeps bringing him into frame to show 
look, I have my best friend's black. I wouldn't be able to go anywhere without him. Mm-hmm. Um, which is an argument that a lot of people make. That well, I have black friends. I couldn't possibly be racist. Yeah. And um, well, and I grew I, up in an all white neighborhood, so like I, I I had no opportunity to be prejudiced. So yeah, it's yeah. that it's that like the the good bad bias. You know. Yeah, it's like I couldn't. You know that, and just kind of blaming the the time period for for maybe why he um, did some of the things that he did, never apologizing for them, um, and that exploitative behavior. And I liked that in the documentary. They, they didn't show uh, him doing that once, but twice. And you see how uncomfortable that man is. Yeah, and he's, it's without his consent to pull him into there. And really that, I think that part, especially for white people, hits you the hardest. And it's, it's to what you said, because I'm guilty of, of, of trying to think of this. Like, well, I've never done anything outrightly prejudiced, and, and I'm a good person, and I've got my, my, my black friends. And, and so, like, and it's just like... And it goes to show, you know, that the sadness and regret at the surface of that, but there's also just a lot of anger behind that from the other side. The, yeah. the anger of the man being pulled into the frame that's being exploited uh, for, for, for the sake of that white person being able to, to make that claim. You know what I mean? And I think, you know, there's another... It, this, this documentary does a really nice job of almost bringing the girls back to life and they use a lot of archival footage and they use photographs and they use as as you're kind of looking at an archival footage you're also listening to the girl's dad talk about what her interests were and so and it definitely recreates through news footage the day of the bombing yeah. so you you feel as if it's happening to yeah. right in front of yeah, you he does a really good job in terms of his direction of that yeah i really uh, that was something that I really loved, like the way that he had edited it as well. Like I just thought um, was so powerful, and I, yeah, I I really enjoyed the fact that it wasn't just um, reconstructing the event itself. It was that no, also learn about who these girls were because they were people. Mm-hmm. And he's so good at that because you learn about them, you. You're, you're feeling the tragedy and then he shows you the morgue photos. Yes. And so that's when I was very emotional. Yeah. Because it's, it's really fucked up. Yeah. Like, and, and it's, I'm trying to, how to, how I want to phrase it, but it's, um, it's, it's a lot of the same way you feel when you're watching the George Floyd. You know what I mean? It's like, it's very challenging to watch this movie is really hard to watch as a as a white person i feel um because it puts you it 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 makes it real yeah and it and it makes you you know think about the ways that you've you've ignored it yeah you know and you know with the morgue photos and then them talking about how that piece of brick was embedded in one of the girls heads yeah and um, it was, yeah, it was just so hard because it's like, you look back at that and, you know, I know that I, you know, wasn't born until like a solid 30 years later, but I was like, oh, but that could have easily been, that could have been you. That could have been my, my grandparents. That could have been like seeing those morgue photos was just like, it is, it's so easy and it's still that easy 
to wind up just like that because Mm -hmm. not a hell of a whole lot's changed because they also talk about there was you know a string of these church uh bombings and arsons that happened even as recently as like the late 90s yeah um and it's just it was it was really difficult and i and i should have known that because it was spike lee because spike lee would would have something like that in one of his films where it's like we're not just going to talk about how the fact that these that these girls you know were caught in the midst of this explosion. We're going to show you what it yeah. what it looks like. Yeah, and it's it's really it's powerful, and you are it again. It, it recreates it it so well, and so I think it's working on a few different levels, and I think you know. Spike Lee is somebody, and he wanted to make this movie like very early in his career, mm-hmm. and and waited, and, and and it is good. I think that he waited because he was able to really show kind of like a ma- master craftsman in, in in ways to bring up those emotions. I Spike Lee in general was kind of uh, my first introduction to just like black cinema or like black filmmakers. He's just you know because I'm I'm I was born in the the late 80s 86 so you know, he's already kind of coming on but um ha- had just made a lot of movies that that i had seen um in the 90s or just like he got game and and, mm-hmm. and things like that and it's like okay like you know you're starting to 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 grow some awareness as a young person but even just recently black Klansmen, i think Ooh. and speaking of more fucking bombs like this yeah. time the bombs in the car but like uh, you know, this is the the evolution of that racism, and you've got, you know, this is this is the racism, and and you've got the um, the uh, Eric Foreman, you've got Topher Grace yeah. as he's the he's a racist in the three piece business suit, and yeah. he's going to to project his racism through litigation and and through running for office, and David Duke, and and it's fucking crazy that at the end of Black Klansmen. He was originally supposed to show them celebrating how they had broken up that that organization, that that clan organization, and, and they had won, and they were supposed to be having a celebration, and there was going to be a cross burning on their lawn, and it was supposed to signify like the battle's not over. There's you know we've we've only just begun, and, yeah. and like there's always this presence. And as he's finishing up the editing of Black Klansmen, you've got the Charlottesville marches, and he says, "No, I'll fucking do one better. I'll just show how it's." right here at the streets and damn it if david duke is not the, the the evil character from this movie is leading is one of the leaders of that charge and is thanking president trump for allowing them the opportunity to have that voice when his character in his movie is complaining about the fact that he has to hide his racism you know and he has to hide it behind you know different things yeah and i have frustrated. to hide who i am yeah exactly Jesus and it's just Christ. like that is just like next level and, and so we're talking about like the when we were talking about the 13th and the power of, of of him talking about pulling people out of his rallies and having them leave on stretchers and and how that was juxtaposed to actual footage from the 60s and then you get like how actual characters from this movie are like thanking the president or how that is still super relevant today in charlottesville it's just like pff, yeah. blows your mind and it's so I, I think that that's something that I've always um, just been so fascinated about in terms of Spike Lee's work is that he's never afraid to go there. Um, 
I don't. He's. I don't know. He's just. I. I just think that he's. He's never afraid to really hold, uh, you know, uh, a microscope up to the severity of of these issues and particularly what what black people live through. And I. I really enjoyed Black Klansman. I had to watch it a second time before I like really clicked into it or before I was like really on board with it. Not because of like the the subject matter, but just because I was like trying to get my my bearings with his stylization with it but then i watched it the second time and i was like oh fuck like this oh yeah yeah another spike lee piece that me and you were talking about and because we live in chicago and because we are very active in the theater community here was he actually recorded uh passover Mm -hmm. a play that was done at the steppenwolf theater here which is my favorite american theater but he recorded that for netflix i'm not sure if it's still on netflix but that was something um, that was was a, a really impactful piece of theater around 2016 as well for us. But it's basically waiting for Godot, but instead of waiting for Godot, it's modernized and it's two black men um, that are, are waiting. And it has, I don't want to spoil it because that, that's probably something not a lot of people have seen, but yeah. I would definitely suggest going and watching Passover. Highly suggest. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. I, I, I know that uh, a lot of people consider... Spike Lee very controversial, and I kind of want people to think about why that is, because I think that a lot of people just maybe don't like the volume at which he likes to turn these subjects matters up to so that you're listening. Yeah. But it's honestly like the volume that you have to turn a protest up to in order to make real change, you right? Do. You don't do you can't do it subtly. Like no. it's been proven that you can't do it subtly. So yeah, sometimes have I been really challenged by Spike Lee and have I might might not necessarily have liked everything? Yeah, but then you got to like think about why that is, right? Yeah. You have to wonder it's like you don't have to, you know, align with everything he says and how he says it, but I think that what's really important is at the is really at the core of what he's saying, which is that I've been making films about this for 30 plus years and we're still having to talk about yeah. it. So think about I wish that I could means. be done. I wish I could make wait in exhale 2 or something. You know, something where it's it's yeah. it's just people and and it's just you know, just regular life stuff, but like no, I have to continue making this. Yeah. I, I I feel obligated to continue to make this because it's still relevant and needed. Yeah, that's another, you know, another thing that I, you know, kind of been uh reading about in a lot of articles people talking about like um you know kind of white fatigue like people um getting kind of tired of like we've been kind of talking about this for two weeks now and i've just taken in so much information and i've watched so many things and it's like when will it be over and it's like when we're not living it yeah and and that's just that's just when i because i spent most of like the last two or three weeks really just immersing myself in a lot of black media, black cinema, uh, black art. And I would be reading, you know, some of these articles where they talk about like how to prevent yourself from getting burnout or how to like, you know, make sure that you're all, you're processing this information in enough time so that you're able to more easily receive it. And I was just thinking about like the, f- the fact that we have to write an article and talk about well, what do you do when you're too tired about hearing about the injustice yeah. of black people? Um, I And I think that that's a lot of times what people kind of associate um, Spike Lee with because that's a lot of what he talks about. And I just think that that's so important. 
that he continues to talk about it because I want more people to be as outspoken as he is. If everything he ever talks about is a racial issue, it's because we have to. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why I, I don't, I just, I love how candid he is about all of that. And this documentary was no different, even though it wasn't a piece of fiction. He was just like, no, I'm always going to be as loud about it. And I'm always going to be as in your face about it as if I had written these characters myself. Absolutely. And I'm just thinking out loud as you're saying this, it's, it's inspiring me to think about the, in this way is how many films, and, and they're great films, but how many films have we seen about the Holocaust or about World War II and, and have, have very much talked about that? And, and then you realize that like a lot of people producing films are Jew, white Jewish men in, yeah. in, in Hollywood. And so like, of course they're going to talk about that oppression. And, of course, and it's like, and, and I think those are great movies and, 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 and important stories to tell, but it's like the, the volume at which you see that story versus the volume at which you see some of the stories that Spike Lee and other filmmakers are doing is just, it's so dramatically different, you know yeah. what I mean? And so it, that's why Spike Lee is just so important. We talk about like giving the voice of the racial other you need people that like are from that experience, uh, can speak to it, can can shine the light on it. Like that's it's it's absolutely critical. So it, it is. I I had watched um, do the right thing the other day, mm-hmm. and I was just like, you're you're watching it, you know, toward the end when you know it kind of erupts in this huge huge fight outside of uh, Sal's restaurant, and you're just like, oh, that could happen yesterday. In fact, it has it probably did happen yesterday. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, he's he's holding a, a mirror up to us as a society, and he's not afraid to tell you to take a good look at yourself and see what you're doing wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to uh, bring up a couple of these just as we as we're we're passing through, but a movie, an, another modern movie, and we're, we're we're talking about the the Montgomery stuff. We're talking about kind of like things in the '50s and '60s. A movie that. Uh, originally was a play but is set in the, the 50 it, two parts once one kind of in the mid 50s and one in, in the uh, 60s kind of as we're coming uh, through the civil rights movement but it's fences written by august wilson and the the film version was with denzel washington and viola davis but I, I you just rewatched this, or was this the first time you'd seen it? I had uh, seen it when it was originally out in theaters. Okay. Um, and then I didn't get an opportunity to, to rewatch it, but uh-huh. I have seen it, and I've seen the play, and I okay. read the play. Yeah. So this movie, I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but I did like it because you know it's it's a tragedy with hope in my opinion and you've got Troy Maxson who is played by Denzel Washington and you know really speaks to uh, what the jail system does it is kind of like a, almost like a like a the, the boots on the ground or like a grassroots like the impact of like 13th is is talking about it um, with a bird's eye and it's it's talking about it um, in terms of uh, some of its impacts socially, but this is kind of a, a story up close, and you know it talks about you know because he had uh, part of his experience, and he he's very bitter about the way his life has turned out. Yeah. Um, but like some of that is shaped around incarceration and, and what that does to the black experience, and I I just think it's it's really interesting because 
he feels like his dreams um, in his life in, in terms of playing baseball and like segregation and what that did and, and how that limited him. He's supposed to be this great baseball player, but he was yeah. limited through segregation and, and, and having to play in the Negro Leagues. And by the time people were willing to allow black players to play in professional baseball, he was too old. And he, he, he thinks about a lot of that. So, you know, he, he ends up kind of abandoning or neglecting his family in pursuit of some of these other dreams, whether it's uh, rising in his, his uh, garbage picking company. And by the way, he has to go to white neighborhoods to pick their garbage. Yep. That is not, uh, that is not a subtle metaphor. No. And also by, um, by lustfully like going and stepping outside of his marriage and but while he's doing that, also suppressing the dreams of his wife, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to play uh, the lottery. You're not allowed, and, and her dreams are just to have a loving whole family. Yeah. And what what that and why that is even a dream in in the black community because people get incarcerated so much because things are split up because people have to do things um, and and so you know he he tries to suppress her dreams his his son's dreams of playing football. Uh, but the reason why it's hopeful is at the end, his daughter, uh, who, who's a young girl, she's kind of growing up kind of post-civil rights now, and she has a much more positive outlook and is able to attack her dreams more, and she has a much more uh, positive image of her father in that. So kind of that reflection of it. Um, I just have always thought, because I read this play um, as part of this discussion on race in college, and I've just always really liked it, and I think the performances are nice, but what do you think? I really like, what I um, enjoy about the film is that I kind of thought of it as like, as if they had filmed the play. It felt very much to me, not necessarily as a film itself, but it kind of felt like in the way that it was shot that it was like, this could have very easily have been like a performance of the play that someone had just filmed, which I, which I really liked. It kind of made it, 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 it felt less, I don't really know how to describe it. It just felt like uh, less performative. Like it felt like you were really just watching these people's lives. Um, and I liked that it talks about this man. He holds a lot of resentment. He holds a, a lot of resentment that... It, he does not hide well. Yeah. Um, but you talk about the generational thing. That was yes. something you brought up earlier, right? And it's like, this is this is generational. His father mm-hmm. had, had had issues in incarceration. He had to step out when he was 14. And like how that influences his life and, and, and then how his behavior in, in kind of running parallel with his father's life affects his son. Yep. And it's just like how this stuff like generationally impacts the next generation. Yep. And we saw that video... Of, uh, did you see the video of the man saying, you're 40 years old, okay, I'm in my 30s, and this is a 16-year-old, yeah. and we've all had this exact same march. We've all yeah, had to deal with this. the same bullshit, and it's like, this is generational. We need to break the chain. Yeah, and, yeah. It, and, and it shows you how he, how that affects how he relates to his son. And it's like, you, because I think you always think that when those things are happening to you, like when he was 14 and he was having to, you know, combat that same relationship with his father. I think there's always that instance where children are always like, well, I'm never going to do this when I'm a parent. I'm never going to, because I know how this feels. I would never, you know, treat my child this way. Mm -hmm. And then you look, it's cyclical. 
So and Rose, and she's trying to avoid that within her whole family. That's yeah. why she's the one that wants to build the fences, right? Because mm-hmm. she wants to keep the harsh realities of the world outside her house. She's trying to build uh, a sanctuary, and really, the harsh realities of her own home Are manifest themselves in right in front of her. Yeah. yeah and, so, and that's the thing. I also, I also, it, it's really touching to me is watching somebody who has what people, other people would probably call simple dreams. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with the fact that all she wants is to be able to have a happy family, to be able to have a family that's not broken up by incarceration, by death, by crime. She just wants to be able to live her life with a husband that she loves, with children that she loves. And it's just so hard to watch her throughout the film be like, why is this so hard? Why is this so unattainable why can't i why can't we have this and i just think that that is something that can be very uh, jarring for people to think about that something as simple as that is something that people black people in particular strive for they they just want to walk down a street normally and not have to worry about what their presence means to everybody else around them and so i just it, it Viola's performance in this especially. She's the best. She is the best. I I know that... Um, I love her so much in Doubt, too. She's so good. She's so good. And I, and I love that whenever people talk about her in, in that film, because she's not in it that much. That she's in one scene, not, yeah. yeah. And it's like, but that's all you need. That's how riveting she is to watch. And her performance in Fences is probably my, my favorite, just because you see... The, the wheels for her are always turning. She's just like, how, how is there, what can I do to ensure that we yeah. can live this kind of a life? And you just watch it slip away from her. Because he's so upset. Troy's so upset with his, the stagnant, how he feels in his life. And he says, do you know what it's like to be in the same spot for 15 years? She's like, I've been in this right next to you for right. 15 years. Do you think, you know, and, and I'm here and I'm supportive of you. And, and yeah, it's so, it's, it's very much a tragedy, but that final scene um, with with the girl, and you can see how she's having a very different experience, and it's kind of coming out of the, you know, I think there's allegory there where it's coming out of the civil rights. It's giving you a little bit of hope that yeah. this family might actually find find some peace in the end, uh, I think is, is is where I kind of cling to some hope. And, you know, there, there was hope coming out of the civil rights movement and when, you know, and, and how that play was uh, developed. So I think, um, you know, there just if you're if you're looking for a silver lining it's you know um i i think george floyd's uh child saying like my daddy changed the world or like there's you know there's ways that you can say like it's i think there's a lot of like we said 400 years we got to unwind the unwind the ball of yarn but you know it's it's i think there is you always are going to cling to hope and i think um you know, some of the things that have already started to change, even if they're very, very minor and there's a long way to go, I, I, I'm trying to look at it in a hopeful place. Yeah, I, I, I think that that holds a lot of truth because it's, it, it is very similar in the sense that, like, they're coming out of it. There, there is that hope. Unfortunately, it also comes on the heels of, you know, Troy's passed away. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's sad to think that he can't be there to see what things could be. Um, and that's very similarly to how I, I, that I, how I think the, with George Floyd, it's just like, I love, you know, that, that 
quote, it, it's just so eloquent to come from, you know, his, his child about how, look at how my, my daddy changed the mm-hmm. world. And it's, it's disgusting to think that it took that for, for kind of this uprising to burst open. But if there is any sort of a, a silver lining, if you can call it that, in this situation that we're currently in, it's like we can't, you know, you can't let it be in vain. Yeah. And that's what I think that I agree with you. I think that that is kind of what the the message is at the end of this film, ultimately. Absolutely. Did you get a chance to see Just Mercy? I did. I did. Want to touch on that for a second I before we talk to. about Whoopi? Yes, okay. I would. Oh, that film. That That's one of those films, I don't know if you have these, but a film... That not only will stick with me forever, I loved it so much, but I don't know how often I could rewatch it. Oh, yeah. I, I it Especially just, the chair scene is very challenging. I just... So for those who don't know Just Mercy, uh, it was released by, I think, Universal for free on Amazon, so you can go watch it. It stars Michael B. Jordan as a, um, a law student from Harvard and originally from Delaware, who as an internship goes to uh, work on death row and um, is, gets, gets inspired to post-graduation, open up a defense law firm for people who um, don't have the means to defend themselves but are on death row. And um, also a completely unrecognizable Brie Larson. I didn't even yeah. know that was Brie Larson for half the movie. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and, and so, you know, they're there and he comes across uh, Jamie Foxx's, uh, plays a, a man named Johnny D who's on death row. And it's one of those, it's a story where the, they find out through the evidence that like clearly this person didn't do, uh, didn't do this crime. And he's, he's trying to fight the, uh, fight the court system and in, in the uh in we talk about the un- unfairness of this judicial system but you know he's trying to fight all of this in the state of alabama yeah. we're back to alabama but yeah and so he's trying to fight all of this to to free johnny d so if you haven't seen it go check it out but one thing that i took away from this was the outrage that america had over making a murderer and how brendan dassey was unfairly like obviously was like forced into taking a plea or like or or obviously like not defended um to the best of a a defense attorney's capability and like all of the activism that went behind making a murderer and brendan dassey and it's like here there's so many examples and and again this movie talks with some really powerful statistics of like one in seven men that are on death row are acquitted or you know they they go back to retrial there's like all these different like cases and scenarios it's like a, a staggering number of people where they they're they're in there for the wrong reasons yeah. they're they're completely innocent yet they're sentenced to death and uh so it, it's it's working with a few different ways with like capital punishment and also uh unjust incarceration of black men and um but it's uh it's it's a it's a it's another good movie with with some nice performances. It, really well. great performances. I I thought it was really well written and also well executed. I think you know, two two things. It kind of goes back to that old. There's an old adage where it's rather ten guilty people go free than one wrongly accused person be imprisoned. And I think that this um, film exemplifies that. I, I you know I won't give too much away, but there is. That, that scene where they're having the hearing about whether or not he can be retried. Yeah. And he, they're just, the judge is presented with this onslaught of, of evidence that just so clearly shows you it couldn't be this person. And 
he still doesn't get the retrial no. from that. They've got to go to the Alabama Supreme Court, like they, because the the county was protecting the county had to protect their image, and they didn't. They they were embarrassed at that point. And uh, I, another great scene is when um, uh, Michael B. Jordan's character, the the lawyer, goes to the house of uh, the prosecuting yes. attorney oh. and. And he says, the prosecuting attorney says, it's my job to protect the communities of this of this county. Um, and he says, what communities are you speaking about right. specifically? Because I'm telling you, the, the people in Johnny D's community do not feel very protected by right. you in this moment. It feels, it feels very one-sided. And I, I think another great thing that the film touches on is... Um, but besides the fact, you know, uh, you know, the prison system itself, it talks about the unjust treatment um, of mentally ill individuals in the prison system. I think that's something that isn't um, as widely talked about. And this is an issue that, you know, transcends race, but it's how um, how mentally ill people are treated within the system and how somebody like Herbert shouldn't have been on death row. He he should have been able to get help for um, PTSD and you know this character he served in Vietnam and when he came back things just weren't right Mm -hmm. you know physically and mentally for him and think about you know not necessarily that he had you know perpetrated a crime because he talks a couple times in this movie how he was the one out of these three characters that they showcase on death row he's the one who actually did what he was accused of but they he talks you know you think about it and it's like well Really, who failed who? Because if you would have come back as a veteran and been taken care of and would have been able to be treated for PTSD, what happened probably, almost unequivocally, you could say wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And he wouldn't have been on on death row. And so it just brings to light an issue which is universal. It's not just in the black community. It's that there are a lot of people who are unjustly imprisoned with uh, really uh, harsh sentences who actually need mental help and there's no real funding that's going toward that and there's not um, a whole lot of checks and balances in that regard and it's very hard to watch mm-hmm. what his character goes through in that film that's because of that. That's such a hard scene. Oh, it's... it's uh, and we... And I always... And I'm, and I'm thinking back now on the... The, the point that 13th makes around the power of birth of a nation and the idea of black men being here to as, as just violent monsters that are raping and murdering our, our, our women. And, and it's just like, and actually like a lot of the injustices when it came to, uh, you know, cross race rape, it was, it's, there's so many more examples they say in 13th of, white men raping black women throughout right. the history of of America right. but you know yet yet that's the image and, and Johnny D is vilified because he had a, a an affair Fair with, with a white, white woman. woman and that's why he is is the target of of this yeah. uh, trumped up charge well that's the thing you know whenever they <clears throat> pull him over initially at the beginning of the movie where they make a where the cop makes a comment to that he was like how this wouldn't be the first time that he's yeah. done something like this and it's just, it's really hard to watch. I, I do have to touch very briefly um, on Birth of a Nation because I, I had such a visceral reaction. I actually watched that for the first time when I was a junior in high school. I oh, took a mass media class. 
and I was one of two black people in the whole class and we I just remember watching it and you're also watching how they portray black people without the use of any black people yeah it's the black face yeah and it's just um oh I because I actually thought a lot about that film while I was watching Just Mercy because I was just like we're still perpetuating the same narrative yeah and we're just spinning our wheels in the mud and it's just it's it's disgusting to think about the the multiple injustices that that um happen in in that film and are based in reality mm-hmm. that's what the the this real sad fact of it is is that this is all real life i will say one thing i did really enjoy another thing i really enjoyed about the film is that it would have been very easy to steer this film into white savior territory with brie larson's character but I like that she, you sometimes you forget she's in the film because there are so many scenes and so much action that happens in between her appearances in it. Yeah. And I just so like that she really was just, she was there, she was there to help him because she truly believed in the cause, but she was there to help him. It was always him driving everything forward. And I really liked that because I... I don't know if you got to see Best of Enemies. It was a film that came out last year with Taraji P. Henson and Sam Rockwell. Um, But that was a film that I was really excited to see because it's based on a real-life friendship of um, a KKK leader, and they're uh, talking about desegregating schools and the friendship that came out of that, and I was really excited to see it. And for me, when I came out of the theater, I won't speak to the experience, obviously, of all black people, but I was like, that was a white savior film because it was really more about... Sam Rockwell coming to terms his with journey. his journey uh-huh. and him being the reason why things changed. And so I was very nervous going into this film. I was just really hoping that that wasn't going to be the case. And I was just really glad that Brie Larson's character was portrayed in just the right way for this story. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Sam Rockwell, an actor I like, but uh, yeah. I'll have to check it out. But I, I'm sure I'll... Yeah. Also, there are pacing issues. It's, it's yeah. It's a not okay. Film. Okay. Uh, let's let's finish up our conversation yeah. with why you love Whoopi Goldberg. Oh God, the things I could say. I just I Whoopi Goldberg is probably one of the people that I have looked up to the longest. Um, I would say if I if she is she is an idol of mine. Um, not only um, just as a black female performer, but also in the films that she makes. Um, I probably, I've seen most of her films and I always find something I can identify in every character she plays. I wore Sister Act out. (laughs) I love, I also love Sister Act too. Sometimes I love it more than Sister Act, which is uh, one of those instances where sometimes I think the sequel is better than the first film. Um, But I remember seeing Ghost and, and Jumping Jack is, Flash yeah. and mm-hmm. um, one um, that was really important to me in my uh, childhood which I don't know if a lot of people know it it's called Corinna Corinna I've never seen it um, but it's uh, Whoopi Goldberg and Ray Liotta and they're growing up in the or they uh, live in the 50s and Ray Liotta's wife has died um, uh, from suicide and he has a young child uh, played by Tina Majorina. I can't remember what mm-hmm. her last name is, but she um, she doesn't talk. She won't talk to anybody after her mom dies. Um, and so Ray Liotta, he's, a, a, he's an advertisement. He writes jingles. And so he needs someone to 
take care of his house and to take care of his daughter. And so Whoopi Goldberg, um, she, uh, her aspiration in that film is to write liner notes for records. She knows a lot about music and she wants to, she wants to be able to, to write for, uh, like, a, yeah. And yeah. to be able to like write for like magazines and she keeps getting rejected. And so she has to take this job and through her coming and, and, uh, taking care of the house and, trying to actually relate to the daughter, the daughter starts to open up. She starts to talk. She starts to come out on the other side of recovering from her mom passing. And through all of that, also her and Ray Liotta start to develop feelings for each other. Oh, okay. And it's a, it's a really great film. It's a really underrated film, but I remember seeing her in that film, especially because it was also something very different from the other roles I'd seen her. And she's, she's always very like brassy and, and sassy and in your face. And I love it. And in this film, she is that, but a, a little bit more reserved because in that time period, black women had to be. And so I think her versatility, her choice in films, the fact that she's also a very strong filmmaker in her own right, the only reason that she agreed to do um, a sequel to Sister Act was if Disney would fund another project of hers. Oh, okay. And, you know, by that point, she, I mean, she definitely had the clout, but she's also somebody who would never, she, she wouldn't stand down from anything. She's like, I want to make this. If you want to make this, you're going to help me make this. Yeah. And so I think it, there's just something about her as a performer, as a woman, she takes no shit. And I just, I even, I don't really watch the, the, the view. view, but I have, anytime I have watched something, it's been a segment where she's, you know, talked about uh, like her, her own opinions of things. She's just so unapologetically herself. And I just think that comes out in her performances. It comes out in the things that she produces, the thing, that, the things that she writes. And I just, um, I mean, aside from the fact that she has a very big place in, in my childhood, she's just somebody I've always kind of as- aspired to be. I think she's just fabulous. I remember seeing her in an interview once, and I can't remember the actress she was talking about. She talked about the importance of this this actress and she said mama mama come in there's a black woman on tv and she's not playing a maid yeah and she talked about how much pride she had that she was able to give that feeling to somebody else and it it, it feels like in a way that is some of the relationship that you have with Whoopi Goldberg what yeah. she's talking about right there yeah because she get she she was probably the first uh black actor and 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 definitely female but probably one of the first black actors i got to see who got to be anything she wanted yeah it was just so great to see the the differences of all the different types of characters she played and and in all of them you always saw a little bit of herself in them she never completely loses herself in it without like bringing a a degree of like her own personality to it which i really appreciate Mm -hmm. um and i just oh she's just somebody that like i i'll rewatch her films like over and over and over again and I just think I actually just recently watched for the first time how Stella got a groove back which is another Angela Bassett film mm-hmm. but she is also in that and I was just like oh my god I just I'm just always in awe of this woman she's just yeah mm, love her on her own terms always okay. well that's all the movies that I had on yeah. my list here so uh you know, just in general, thank you so much for coming on. And, yeah, thanks you know, for having me. Yeah, of course. And, you know, some things that are book, not to make this uh, too much of a book club, but, mm. you know, um, 
you know, get ed- the the book suggests some some things to do, and so if people are thinking, at least um, you know, some things I'm going to try to take with me uh, from this book that that I'll impart to you guys is first of all, read that book. I think it's a it's a really good. Uh, piece of material white fragility but it talks about get ed- get educated in a variety of ways uh, engage in conversation with people of color don't depend on them to teach you things mm-hmm. uh, read article watch films and books uh, but definitely think about who you have in your orbit uh, and engage in, in engage in conversations on race uh, and and um, if it makes you uncomfortable that's that's part of the journey that's part of growth that's and you know talk to white people as well not to help you process your feelings but are you know help you process your feelings um rather than to spare you from them so you know seek out people that are going to work with you and 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 grow with you as well and then challenge white people uh you know in your social circles that are operating with with arrogance when it comes to race and so some things you know i think that the more we speak the more we the more we get educated you know if you're in a circle of, of all white people and you know, something comes along, you know, it's, it's part of the duty to challenge. So, you know, that's, that. those are just some things you can do some one degree changes. Um, but yeah, just get used to talking about race. Yeah. yeah. I, I think people forget that, um, protesting I'm all for, I'm very much, um, somebody I, um, love going to protest. I'm a protest person. That being said, everyone's got their lane. So figure out what it is that, um, is kind of like the, an entry point for you in terms of how best to educate yourself, how best to educate other people in your lives. I think the most important thing is remembering not to rely on your uh, black and and other uh, people of color, uh, not depending on those people in your lives to fully educate you. To educate you, yeah. So a lot of humility, um, speak about race, learn a lot about race. Uh, I'm going to continue to to try to be humble and, and and have humility when it comes to that and uh you know also just this is a very very small platform but to have more conversations like we had today so you know i'm very excited this is part one we're gonna speak a lot to this stuff uh coming forward there's a there's a lot more to talk about so part one of like a million part one of a new segment let's keep talking about it let's keep talking girl and also some other stuff too yeah i'm excited great it's gonna be great you're the best Audience, you're the best. Please remember to like and subscribe and love each other. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Bye.